Uh, you can flip over. Um, we've got your text here printed on pages 10 and 11. Um, we will, let me, I want to give you just a little bit of a, um, hopefully this will be a comfort uh, road map of where we're going. We've been in the book of Genesis for a long time and the book of Romans for a long time. Um, there are still five chapters left, but we are going to finish the whole book over this Sunday and next Sunday. So we've only got two more sermons in the book of Genesis. And there's a big reason for that. Um, that this is a long story that is revolving around certain themes, um, and it is winding its way to a conclusion. Um, so there's there are two chapters of blessings at the end that we're going to get to look at with some rich things in them next week. Um, but hopefully that'll uh, get you oriented about where we're going over the next few weeks. So we are here at the end of Genesis. Um, we have been talking about this story of Joseph. And if you haven't been here, you're not familiar. This is the story of Jacob, one of the people of God's great patriarchs, uh, one of his favorite sons named Joseph, who his brothers despised and tricked him and sold him into slavery, um, and who met hardship after hardship after hardship. He was sent down to Egypt. Um, he rose to prominence again in um, a guy named Potiphar's house as one of his servants, and then he was sent to prison again for a false accusation from the guy's wife, and his story is one up and down and up and down. But what we see behind the scenes in all of this is that God has been at work through the ups and through the downs to position Joseph as his man exactly where he wants him, not only to bless Joseph uh, in the end, but also to bless the whole nation of Egypt, to bless the whole people of God. Um, to save them from a famine that was coming, um, that Joseph was able to warn Pharaoh from through interpreting his dreams. And where we're picking up the story this morning, Joseph has been made Pharaoh's right-hand man. He has been exalted after all of his hardships into this great place of power and the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And he has just revealed himself of who he actually is to his brothers to the ones who had done him wrong in the very first place and sold him into slavery. So where we are going to be, we're looking at these two chapters this morning. Um, at a lot of ways, the conclusion to this story. And we get a unique time where we can reflect back on what God has done in this story. But it is also going to have us look forward to another story that is to come, which you will see. And last thing I want to point out to us before we read this to keep in mind as we do it. I know I've mentioned this a couple times before. The book of Genesis was written and given to um, the Exodus people of God. So the people who had left Egypt, who had been slaves in Egypt, um, who had been redeemed by God in a powerful way and are wandering through the universe, came to Mount Sinai, and God gave um, these, these large portions of these... Um, books of the Pentateuch, depending on where we are in the, in the timeline. And so when we think about this story, what I want us to have in mind is what would this be like to hear as somebody who has just been redeemed by God in a powerful way, but who is out in the desert, who is wandering around in the wilderness, who has not yet arrived at the ultimate destination of where God has for them to go. 
So all that being said, let's turn our attention to our passage. And I will read it. These are, um, this is an edited section of these two chapters, um, not edited content. I've just left out some parts for the speed of, of reading. But this is God's word, uh, these verses from Genesis 45 and 46. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord to all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There will I provide for you and there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. And the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons and according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive. He is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And, and his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey. And all that he had, and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray briefly. Dear Father, I too pray that you would be with us in this time, that you would instruct us and teach us. Open our hearts and make us receptive to what you would have to teach us. Give us wisdom into the attitudes and workings of our hearts that we might find life in you and who you are. Help me to be clear 
uh, be with my thoughts that I might speak truth. Um, but I pray that everything that I say and everything that is heard, you will ultimately be sovereign over and you will use it to accomplish your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start off with that being said, thinking about the Exodus gener- generation. And if, if you're familiar with the biblical story, what was, just think about what it was like and what they were facing at the time, having left Egypt and awaiting to go into the promised land. And I think a lot of things come to mind quickly. It was probably hot. They were probably tired. Um, they were continuously going without food, not knowing where it was, would come from. They don't know how long the journey is going to be, what they're going to find when they get there. It's in the middle of a hard journey. But if we also remember, uh, if we think about how they handled it, there is one dominant theme that comes up when you read through the book of Numbers um, and the rest of this story, and that is there is a lot of complaining going on. That every step of the way, they were tired and they were thirsty and hungry and they complained. And on one level, like, that's always sat a little bit uncomfortable with me because you want to say, like, they're hot, they're tired, they don't know where food's coming from, they don't know where water's coming from. Like, can you blame them for complaining in that moment? Um, So that leads us to think and kind of unpack Like, what was it they were missing? Why does the Bible keep highlighting that aspect of their journey again and again and again, despite how hard it was? And I think this is the issue. um, That it is one thing to suffer. um, And it is another thing to suffer with a soft heart that is open to who God might be and what he might be doing. And that is a hard, hard thing to do. Um, And that what God continuously, how he continuously revealed himself to his people in what he has done and in those moments was that he was leading them, he was with them, he was a father to them, he was continuously providing and delivering them. And what God wanted from his people was the kind of soft heart that was able to say that this is hard and this is miserable but that was at that point also able to trust. And this is difficult because what I want to, as we unpack this, I'm calling wilderness-type thinking. And I bet that you know a little bit about what wilderness-type thinking is. And that is, whenever things are difficult, whenever things are stressful, whenever there has been a long history of wrongs done or hardship, then what happens to your heart is that it kind of dries out. It kind of turns in to protect itself and to insulate um, from what might be coming in the future. And the result of that is that it becomes hard. Like the joy goes away. Um, The worship, the awe of God goes away. Those kinds of things. The life goes away. And this can look like a number of things. It can look like a rejection of God is not good, Like, how could a God put me in this kind of situation? It could also look a little more subtle than that. And I want to tell you this um, story. One of the main things that stuck out to me in prepping for this was um, 
There was a time in my life where I very vividly remember. It was not a time particularly of hardships, of tragedies in the moment. There had been hard parts about the story in the past. But the present was filled with just a lot of stress, um, a lot of busyness, a lot of discomfort. Um, not too high, not too low, just this ever-present. It was like this sensation of um, being like a gazelle wandering through the desert um, kind of situation. And what it did um, between me and how I viewed God um, was brought to my attention very clearly. It was, it was like this experience of believing that God is there and hoping in Him to deliver and asking Him to deliver, but all of the in-between was like, I don't want to have anything to do with you and what you might want to have in my life. So as things turned out, I actually wronged somebody else, um, and I realized that I had wronged somebody else, and I went to them and I apologized and asked for forgiveness, and they were able to offer forgiveness. But what I noticed in that relationship was that despite my desire for closeness with this person, they were holding me at arm's length. Probably because, certainly because of the hardship that I had caused for this person. And it got so frustrating. I remember walking through the woods. I went out um, to a park and I was just venting at God, so frustrated. Like, I'm doing everything I can to make it right with this person and they just are holding me at arm's length. And for the record, I have never heard God speak to me in an audible way. Um, like for, the, for those of you listening in, I've never heard God speak to me in an audible way. Um, but this thought came to my head um, that I ho- if, if it was my thought, it was very brilliant. Um, it basically said, as if God was saying, you are so frustrated that this person is holding you at arm's, li- arm's length And yet, that is exactly what you are doing to me, and I have done you absolutely no wrong. Why is that? And I think the reason is, in the the mix of all of this just stuff, um, when life got hard, then the easiest thing to do is just to bunker down the hatches and insulate, to be very dissatisfied with who God is. We still want Him to help And we still want him to come through in the moments we need him. But to actually have a soft heart and to be open that whatever he might be doing and might be working just might be a good thing is just impossible to take. So we hold him away and we hold him at arm's length. And I think this connects to where we are in this story and to the wilderness generation. Because one, if you notice, you can tell me later if you think this is too big of a jump. But we get some interesting things here about Jacob. And that it says that his heart is numb because of his story. And this is not the first time. When he thought Joseph died, he refused to be comforted. Here, he doesn't let Benjamin go away from him because he can't handle the thought of him leaving. He can't um, even believe that God might have done something good with Joseph um, with Joseph in Egypt, that he might still be alive. And at the same time, after he says this, then we get this, this is like, should be a storm on the horizon for us, this vision that God gives 
to Jacob on the way. He says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt because when you go down there, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to go there with you myself and I'm going to lead you back up again. Referring both to Jacob's burial coming back out and a foreshadowing of what? The Exodus. If you were in the wilderness reading this, this would have jumped out at you that there is something about what the author is drawing our attention to that he wants us to think about the hardship that was done um, before the Exodus and afterwards to equip the people to be able to continue their wilderness journey with the kind of soft heart that he would have. So that's why I'm approaching this passage in this way. And I really have two points I want to make. Um, And then we'll have some application at the end. The first point um, is that this passage is going to show us what God is capable of. Um, Secondly, it's going to show us with what kind of leadership um, God uses to undertake this process. And then we'll have a few points of application. So let's jump right in. Just what is God capable of in this story? In a lot of ways, it is a very nice story. This is the end. This is where a lot of the hardship is in the past. And at first reading, when you read through this, there is a whole lot of healing going on in a lot of different relationships. You have Joseph, who has been brought out of his despair, and he has been made ruler over of Egypt You have his brothers who have wronged Joseph, who are reconciled with him. You have Jacob, this curmudgeonly old man who has the weight of his years and has grown very pessimistic um, about his life. His spirit be revived uh, because of a word of good news that came to him. This is the first thing we see here. Uh, And I think in a way this is illustrating that God is actually capable of great healing in a variety of different circumstances. And I recognize saying that, that this might, that might be the most basic Bible story kind of answer that we can give from this. But let's think about ourselves, shall we? Think about your own life. Think about the complex situations that you are in the middle of. You can think about the broken relationships. You can think about the wrongs that you have done somebody else. Think about just the wounds that you carry. Um, And those build up over time and they accumulate. um, And we start to hunker down on the inside. But there is something here. This is not a prescription of what will happen in every case. Um, But there is something compelling about this that God is saying that he is actually capable of bringing healing to really crazy situations. And on top of that, we are all like rational, scientific kind of people. We know the impact of things that actions have and consequences. We've grown up learning those. But at the same time, we are confronted with this idea that God is actually capable of, in humanly impossible ways, reaching in and bringing healing to even the hardest of heart. And how does he do that? He does this in this great display and discussion of his own sovereignty. And that is, as Jacob says these, Joseph said these things to his brothers, that like you intended all these bad things, you created this disaster of a situation. 
But what God did, he sent me down to Egypt for his own purpose so that he could raise me up. This does not mean that God, and this is, a, this is the classic philosophical difficult conversation, is what do we do with God's sovereignty and human responsibility? And at the same time, this is not saying that God approves of the poor decisions that people make. It's not saying that he goes out of his way and directly causes harm on people. But it is saying that he is capable of releasing people to their own ends in very strategic ways and that he is able to usurp any decision that anyone makes so that rather than in creating harm, it can actually end up serving to further God's purposes. Not even just having for God having to navigate around these mistakes or these bad decisions or whatever, that God is actually in his sovereign wisdom is able to usurp bad things and make them serve his ends. That's one of the first things we see here. And I think that should be a challenge of us and how when we look at our own story and we look at who God is, that he is actually capable of great healing in his sovereign wisdom. There's something else he's capable of here. And that is, he is also capable of allowing great suffering. And we cannot read this story without holding those two things side by side and dealing with both of them. We've seen this all along in the story with Joseph and how God allowed some horrible things to happen to him um, on this journey and that the journey to good was not all roses. But we also have this just great picture, this foreshadowing of another hardship that God is about to lead his people into, that he is going to take them down to Egypt and he is going to make them a great nation down there. And he is going to allow them to be enslaved by Pharaoh. And he will eventually deliver them. But even with the delivering, this is, this is kind of a... This is saying that this is, God is capable of doing this. He's capable of allowing hard things to happen. Uh, mysterious things. Things that we don't understand. And I think that we can wrestle intellectually with these issues of... You know, is this God's plan or is this human action, um, God's sovereignty versus human responsibility? Those are intellectually hard to, to reconcile. I think the real issue underneath that, though, is when we realize that God can both, that he both has power to bring great healing and to allow great suffering, that that is much harder to reconcile emotionally because it means we feel totally out of control. That means we don't know what the pathway is going to be like. We don't know where the next water is going to come from in the desert. We are totally dependent on what God is going to do. And that, it is in the position of being out of control where the heart just wants to, I can't handle that. I'm going to use whatever resources I have to make my own way, to get control however possible, to insulate myself from pain. Here's the conclusion to all this in this first point, just about God's sovereignty and his capability, that we need to understand 
God's movement and direction of this story, he is both capable of bringing great healing, he is both capable of allowing great suffering. But the point this is driving for and wants us to see is that these decisions that he makes are not arbitrary. And that the sufferings are not just creative pathways that he brings people through. But what he is actually all about is bringing healing through everything and anything that anybody might do. It is He is about, at the end of the day, even our own mistakes, even other people's hardship, even hard circumstances, that He is he is undertaking the business of using those things not just to get us through them but actually promote good. That is difficult to get our minds around even more difficult to get our hearts around but there is good news in that in one point. Whatever the desert looks like whatever the hardship is that this is not something that is going to leave you as a shell of a person afterwards to which there is no coming back from. That God's power usurps all circumstances, all people, all choices, and ultimately, he gets what he wants. And what he wants for his people is to lift them up in just the way um, that he knows in his own wisdom. That's God's capability. Um, And that's good and all. But if we stop there, we're kind of left with this intellectual puzzle. That's good to know. Um, But there's more to the story than that, what God actually does for us here in this passage. And I want to draw your attention to just this last section here in chapter 46, when God is foreshadowing what he is about to do for those who went down to Egypt. He says, And God spoke to Israel in his visions of the night, and he said, Jacob, here I am. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I'll make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. I think this verse shows us something very personal about God, particularly the, the way that he undertakes his plan, the way that he leads us through the sovereign plan that he has worked out for his people. And that is, he is the kind of leader who does not sit back from afar and dictate to everybody else, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to go. Um, You're going to have to go through that. Sorry, wish it wasn't the case, but this is it. He says, as one commentator put it really well, he sends his people down to Egypt, but it's like he packs up his own bags and he travels down to Egypt with them, exactly where they're going. Now, no, God cannot be enslaved. He wasn't being enslaved by Pharaoh. But he identifies with his people, not just at the end of what he plans, but all along through the process. He's the kind of leader that puts himself on the front lines and who goes there first so that he can be there with his people whatever they go through. I had this track coach who was um, a good friend of mine, and he was terribly frustrating to me because... The reason, I, I, I hated track practice, by the way. I, I don't understand it. Like, it is just putting yourself through the most amount of pain possible so that you're better equipped to go through more pain um, for longer periods of time. Um, 
but he was so frustrating to me because he, he would give us crazy workouts to do, but he would always do everything that he told us to do right along with us. So there was no room to complain. Like, if you didn't do it, then, you know, you're just, well, he could do it. <laughs> I mean, who are you? But it was also this, it was, it was so motivating that there was a camaraderie with him through the process of him being willing to step into the shoes of those that he is dictating um, and to go through the process with them. And this is where we get a glimpse of this in this passage of what this is like. The, the means through which he carries out his plan is not from a distance, but it is very near. It is a very relational um, kind of way. But this, of course, we know is more fleshed out when we follow the story on to the end, because this is exactly what we have in the cross. And that Jesus, even when we were lost, even when we were experiencing great suffering, he didn't stay back from afar and just work the whole thing, like figure out some creative way to work it out. He actually stepped into the story. He took on the burden. He took on what it is like to be in the wilderness and to not know where his next meal is coming from, to not know, um, to plead with God for a different way, to know that kind of stress of feeling distant from God because of hardship. He stepped into every one of those situations, not as we do, but as a faithful son whose heart was soft, who was in tune to God's will, who lived to accomplish God's will. And there are two very important reasons why that is powerful for us. On the one hand, that means that as we suffer, he knows and he is right there. We've talked about that a lot through this passage, his presence in the middle of this. Um, He is the kind of leader through Christ that he steps into our stories wherever we are and walks the path with us. He packs up his bags and comes with us. But there's another side to that which is equally important, is the reason he did this was not just for those who suffer, but also for the complainers. For those who are like Israel, who are out in the wilderness and who are bewildered and don't know and whose hearts have become hard. He did that so as you are distant from God of your own accord, and I am of my own accord, of my own bad decisions, him stepping into the story also means him taking my place. And because he took my place, that means that as God orients himself towards me in the wilderness, in the middle of it all, he doesn't do so as somebody who stands back and points and criticizes and says, I need you to get to the, your act together. I need you to soften your heart so that I can do you good. He took all of that on himself, taking your place, taking it to the cross, and raising again to new life. So as you walk that wilderness road, God's disposition towards you is one of delight. And not just delight. The kind of delight he has for his most favored son who walked the wilderness road, who endured 40 years without wavering. And this is so that you have the confidence, not knowing what is going to come, not knowing what kind of wilderness you're going to be in, not knowing where the end is going to come. That we have both this effect of 
what he's capable of working out and also the reassurance of him going right there with us. As God leads us, he leads us in Christ, not apart from Christ. And that is good news for us. Why does that matter? Just a few things. There are a lot of ways that we can take whatever wilderness wilderness we're in and let that get into our thinking and let that get into their hearts. Some of us are kind of like Jacob. We're like, there can be no good. You know, it's been one hard after one hard after one hard and one hard, and I'm tired of it. I can't take anymore. I don't expect anything good at all. I'm going to wall off. It's like the Princess Bride. Life is pain, Highness. And anyone who tells you differently is selling something. Um, I have great affection for this kind of people because this is my kind of people right here. This is an attempt to prevent pain by doing this. But what God is challenging us here is that whatever we have faced in the past, whatever we're there now, God was there before, He is there in the middle, and He is there after. He is not fundamentally about just getting you through. He is about, in whatever He is working, blessing. He is the God who gives. He is the God who gave His Son for you. He is the God through that that is working great blessing for His people. And that's something that we should consider and we should um, take in and meditate on. Um, who is this God that we are walking with? Some of us are different. We think this is all my fault. We've parented wrong. We've spoken wrong. Um, we've been educated wrong. Um, we've made all the wrong choices. Um, it ultimately comes down on us. And the thing here is there is not one element of this story that is about human excellence. Everything in this story is about what God has done out of mercy through his people. And everything he has done through Christ is to bring you close when you were far away. Really, this kind of thinking is a way of being overconfident, both in our ability to screw up what God has intended and our ability to do good and make good choices. At the end of the day, they're all not that great. We're really not that great. But we have been given someone who is. It is in Christ that we're walking this road. It is in Christ that the Father looks on you. And lastly, I think where we're all coming from, we'll draw this to a close. We have those on either side, but I think at the end of the day, all of us are afraid of being out of control, of not knowing what's coming, because that is very uncomfortable. But I think what we learn here is that, I mean, we can try that. One thing you will never grow in in your entire life is control. You will never get more control over anything than you already have. We're going to be just as out of control whether we stay up late at night, um, whether we feverishly turn to hypervigilance and try to get control. That's not going to happen. What we can grow in is trust. And the reason why we have these stories is because they are presenting us the God of the Bible and the true story of what your life is all about. They are presenting his character of who he is with you and who he is towards you 
even while you are in the wilderness. And trust only comes through familiarity. It only comes through the relationship. And this is why we have this truth. It is a presentation of God. And as we have this particularly through the lens of the cross, that what God has done towards you and for you is far more than you'll ever do towards Him. He loves you. He has not abandoned you. He has given to you great good. He will continue giving you great good all the way to the end. And it is only in that kind of position of grace that the closeness of trust can grow. And that's what I want to commend to us as we are, um, we'll have one more sermon on this, but as we are digesting the story of Joseph. Um, Who is he? Like, what is the power that he has? What is the grace that he has? What is the fellowship that he has all along the journey? Um, This is a work we can't do on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to work in us. So let's go to him and pray that he would do that. Dear Father, have mercy on us as we stand back and we stand far from you and we don't trust. We rely more upon ourselves and we try to make our own way in the way that we see best. Have mercy on those attempts. Bring us back. Give us the life that you have given in the gospel that our hearts might be turned and we might trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.